Good morning, New Hope Church. My name is Michael Glenn. I'm the worship pastor here. Pastor Mark, our teaching pastor, is fishing, I believe. Anything he can do to be more Christ-like, right? Um, but over the last couple times I've been with you, I've been preaching from behind this pulpit, we've been looking at Psalm 103. And if you may remember from a couple weeks ago, one of the things I stated about Psalm 103 which is, it is what uh, John Piper calls the most gospel-infused psalm in the entire book of Psalms. So yes, the gospel, the good news, the good news that we celebrate, that we sing about here week after week. The good news that is, I think, most famously summarized by Jesus himself as recorded in the Gospel of John. Jesus is having a conversation with a few spiritual leaders of his own day, and he says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Have you heard that one? I want you to notice that this salvation that we continually celebrate that is summarized by Jesus in this verse is based on a premise. It's because of something that God gave his son. And what is that thing? God so loved. God loves. God did give his son, but on that basis, on the foundation of love for the world. Now you think as a believer, the love of God would be something that would just monopolize our thought process. But I'm a believer and I'm willing to admit that sometimes life gets distracting. It's get, it gets busy, it gets difficult. And I can find myself recounting or mulling over things in my mind that aren't that beneficial in the God loves you department. Or maybe it's the way we talk about the love of God sometimes. And I just got to get this off my chest a little bit. Like we talk about it like, like we're passing on a Valentine in junior high, you know, with like some bursting emoji and a good cuddle or something. I just, yeah, that's your thing. I'm not trying to beat you up, but... Um, that's just not me, I guess. So, but we're going to be looking, church, at some wonderful scripture verses that speak and describe God's love. And, this, and the psalmist did not write these down for us just so that we can have some warm and fuzzy feelings inside. No, there is a greater purpose. So the last time I was with you in Psalm 103, we talked about one of the big lessons we got was that the act of recounting, the act of remembering, focusing on God's love for us and what the God's love has done for us is how God builds us up in strength and faith, faith and builds us up in Christ. Recounting, remembering, believing on the love of God is how he does this. And the first line of the Psalm, chapter 103, is self-talk. It's the psalmist encouraging his own soul to recount God's love for him. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Now, I like to watch movies. I'm a movie guy. And one of my favorites, I have to tell you, is a movie called Secondhand Lions. Um, some of you are familiar with this one. It was made back in 2003. And it tells a story of a young boy named Walter. 
And Walter uh, comes from a troubled family, and his mom is interested in going off uh, for the summer doing her own thing. So she negotiates to drop Walter off with two older distant relatives, um, Uncle Hub and Garth. And over the course of that summer, Walter has the most fantastic adventures. And part of those adventures are hearing these stories about what Uncle Hub and Garth used to do and used to be when they were young. Here's all these stories. And so near the end of the film, young Walter corners Uncle Hub and he really presses him on it. He said, you know, I've heard all these stories about what you did in Africa and all these other countries. Are they true? Everything that everybody's ever told me is a lie. I just need to know if these stories about you, Uncle Hub, are true. And Uncle Hub quips back something you might not expect. He says, doesn't matter. And young Walter's like, it absolutely does matter. I need to know. So Uncle Hub pauses and said, you know what, son? I'm going to give you just a brief portion of my man's speech. He goes, I give this to young men. So I'm going to read for you now what Uncle Hub told young Walter, a little piece of his man's speech. See if you agree. Sometimes things that may or may not be true are the things that a man needs to believe in the most, that people are basically good, that honor, courage, and virtue mean everything, that power and money mean nothing, that good always triumphs over evil, and that true love never dies. Doesn't matter if it's true or not. A man should believe in those things because those are the things worth believing in. The point of Uncle Hub's man speech is to be careful to be delivered about what you choose to believe, what you treasure, what you focus on. Choose worthy things. Why? Because what you choose to believe in will shape your life. What you remember, what you recount, especially what you think about God, as Pastor Mark likes to say, determines what you do next. Now, the Apostle Peter gives a brief testimony about his own ministry in reminding and recounting the, the love of God for people in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, and in the process, points out what you may have caught on is the monumental flaw in Uncle Hub's man's speech. Listen. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established, here it is, in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. For we do not follow cleverly desired tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see, it absolutely does matter if what we believe is true. Think about it. If believing in something that may or may not be true can shape your life, then belief in the unalterable foundation truth of God, what will that do in your life? Now, the first part of the Psalm 103, verses uh, two through five, which we studied last time, can be summarized in the way that God's love deals with us on a very personal, on a very intimate level. I'm gonna read those again. Let's remember what it said. Remember about God's love. Remember that God pardons all of our iniquities, heals our diseases, redeems our life from the pit, 
crowns you with loving kindness and compassion and satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. So if you want to know where I'm getting all this business about how recounting and remembering God's love will build you up to make you strong in faith, you need to look no further than the end of the verse that I just read. Jody, can we put that back up? Right there in the psalmist's use of the image of an eagle. And by the way, I love the, the uh, part in the Bible when it says, so that. I always perk up when I see a so that or um, therefore, because what you're about to read is what God is planning on doing or who am I about to become? We read about this forgiving, loving, healing God so that, so what does that mean? Oh, I'm supposed to become an eagle. Church, I firmly believe that our great, loving, forgiving, redeeming, healing, satisfying, crown-giving Heavenly Father desires for your faith in Him to feel and function like an eagle looks. That's what I'm talking about. Look at that guy with that gaze and that beak and that just kind of proud poise and strength that if we could translate into English might just be, bring it. <laughs> we may get the warm and fuzzies when we recount and recall the love of God together, church. I know that I do sometimes, but to be renewed in strength and vigor like an eagle. We're not just gonna know God's love or know about God's love this morning. We're going to believe it. We're going to stand on it, recount it and celebrate it and watch God turn us into spiritual eagles. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray, and then we'll continue in our song. Lord God, we have gathered here today. We have celebrated who we are. We have sang about your goodness, about your grace, about your power to free us. And God, now we ask out of your word, in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would make us strong, that you would awaken us um, in our sinful unconcern at times of your love. Renew our vigor and our passion to recount it to one another, to dwell in it and to allow it to change us. Make us strong now, I pray, Jesus, in your name. And all God's people said, amen. So the opening five verses of Psalm 103, which we studied last time, um, are based upon, um, let, me, let me just read it, are focused on what God's love does for us on a very personal level. Beginning in verse 6, the psalm shifts to focus on what God's love does for his people as a community or family. Now that's going to be very clear just from the text itself, but also in the meaning of one of the words in the first verse of our package that, or passage that we're looking at today. So let's take a look. Psalm 103, verses 6 and 7. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. It's this Hebrew word that we translate into performs that I want to point out to you. Um, in other translations of the Bible, it's also translated works or makes. 
Um, but it has a shade of meaning that I want you to see. I'm going to put the definition of this Hebrew word up on the screen, and let's take a look at it. Now, I'm not a Hebrew speaker, but I did listen on the internet this week. I clicked the button a lot about how this word sounds. So if I do it wrong, be patient. It's awesaw. There you go. Um, it's to do or make. But this is the part I want you to pay attention to that doesn't come across as clearly in the English. In the broadest and widest application. So when we say the Lord performs righteous deed in the broadest and widest application. And that's important. And we'll be coming back to this point later because right now we have to talk about justice and righteousness for the oppressed. But keep that in mind about the overarching view of God, his perceptions, his understanding of working for uh, justice for the oppressed is on a timeline and a scale that we can't comprehend. All right, so to get us started on verse six about uh, justice, I'm gonna show you uh, the verse six from a different translation because I think it's more prickly and I think it'll help us get started. Look at Psalm 103.6 from the English Standard Version. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. How does that sit with you? I don't know, Michael. If God is at work to perform justice for all who are oppressed, then how do we understand all the injustice in the world? That's kind of a controversial question, no? Um, so yeah, we're going to have to have our own little mini hard questions moment here at New Hope Church this morning. So I'm going to answer that question because I just, I don't want to move on and have some of you rattling that question around your brain and kind of dismissing everything else I said. Um, I actually had lunch with a friend of mine this week and we got to talking about me preaching and what I preached on last time. He's like, oh yeah, forgiving sin, grace, gospel. He's like, what are you doing this time? I'm like, oh, it's about how God works justice for the oppressed. And he busts out laughing. He's like, oh, you know what, man? I'll be happy to look through ministry website, job opening uh, things, just in case you preach yourself out of a ministry job on Sunday. I'm like, thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. We got to talk about justice. And I got to be honest, I really did try this week in my study to get away from having to confront this hard question, but the Holy Spirit was having none of it. So here we go. Hard question time here with Michael at New Hope Church. If God is at work to perform justice for all who are oppressed, then how do I understand all the injustice in the world? Well, gratefully, just two weeks ago, Pastor Mark preached a hard question series that was called, What Do I Do or How Do I Understand the Fact That There Is Evil in the World? And can we all agree that injustice and evil, you can just take those words and swap them around and we kind of have the same thing. Why is there evil in the world? Why is there injustice in the world? Those are the same things. So because Mark spent 40 minutes sharing and answering that question two weeks ago, I'm going to take the liberty of beginning our look at justice by making some assumptions based upon what Mark preached on two weeks ago and, um, yeah, two weeks ago. And it's this. These are the principles that I'm, we're starting from these truths. That God is good and loving and all-powerful. Amen? People create injustice, not God. Let me back up that up with scripture. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His way is perfect. 
for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32. Now, there are at least two main principles about justice that we can learn from the Bible. We might be able to parse out more, but just for the purposes of keeping this scale down for our time together, I just want to look at two. The first one is this. God demands that his people do justice. That's us. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What does the Lord require of me? Well, here's your answer from Micah chapter six. But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I think this verse right here could change our world. Notice what is paired with and comes immediately after the doing justice part, the command to be humble and kind. I don't know about you, but when I feel like I'm watching the news and I'm seeing somebody fight for justice, I don't see a lot of kindness and humility. How much different would our world be if all the justice warriors of the world were equally kind and equally humble. I don't know. God wants his people to do justice. And in doing so, reflect back to the world, his own heart to work for those people that are oppressed. And the Bible is full of specific instructions on what God considers to be justice. So I picked out six. I picked out six, uh, three thou shalt nots and three commands in the positive. Let's take a look. Just a quick survey. Justice, according to God, that God commands that we that do not acquit the guilty. That's from Proverbs 17. We are not to show any partiality. That's in Deuteronomy 16. We are to not pervert justice. That's Leviticus 19. And by the way, a quick definition of Perverting justice is simply this. It's something sinful that we call justice. That's how you pervert justice. God commands on the positive side that we show compassion and mercy, Zephaniah 7, that we bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause, Isaiah chapter 1, and that we give freely and generously to the poor. These things and a whole bunch of other things that I don't have time to cover right now are doing justice according to God. However, never forget the second main biblical principle on justice, which is this. God himself is the ultimate final authority on justice. He's the final judge and the ultimate executor of it. So here's the deal. We are to pursue justice. But I bet in a group of people just this size right here, if I really wanted to get salty, we could probably find an issue or a topic that some of us would consider just on one end of the issue and some of us would consider just on the other end of the issue. Now, I don't want to get too messy or something, but maybe something just about how our government spends its money, Right? Half of us might think this is just. Half of us might think that that is just. And whatever, I'm not getting into that. That's not the point. Here is the point. And it has to do with answering the question that I posed earlier. 
the answer to why there is injustice in the world. The reason there is injustice, that justice is flawed between people is because people are flawed. We're flawed. I hope it didn't just ruin your morning. That is why there's injustice. All have sinned. All people fall short of the glory of God. So until people all together stop being greedy, vengeful, prideful, selfish, and wicked, we will never have a perfect justice system on this planet. Now, remember, I'm talking about saw. I'm talking about the high, high view. You know, if we, I'm sure we, if we got specific enough, we can look at different things and say there, justice was done, justice was done, justice was done. But when we're way, way up and we're looking over the world and we're looking over history, is anybody going to argue with me that it's generally been unjust? Right? We will never have perfect justice on that planet in that sense. But here's the thing. Jesus is going to return. And justice will roll like a river. Amos 5. Every wrong will be righted. You think about it. You remove sin from people. No more courts. No more cops. No more lawyers. That's funny to me. My dad's a lawyer. I had to throw that out there. I can do that. Come from a strong line of lawyers. So God is currently working, performing, making justice from a very, very high vantage point on a long arc. But one day he will finish the job. Two scriptures to back that up from Colossians chapter three. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we must all appear before the judgment of seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I grew up in suburban Chicago, in a house that was average for the area, two-story, two-car garage, um, close enough to the train station so that my dad could walk to a train, hop it, get, get into the city, work, and return home. And um, the garage door on my house growing up was a little different from the, the garage doors I see these days. Um, the, my garage door as a kid actually had, had two handles on it. There was like a vertical handle about, about this high off the ground, and you could like turn it and unlatch the garage door. And then about an inch from the, the bottom of the garage door, there's, there's a horizontal handle that, so you could like pop open the garage, grab the handle, and then then lift it up. I don't see much of those anymore. I don't know if maybe the garage door in my house growing up predated the automatic garage door opener that was there, but that's, that's what it went. So uh, my brother and I back, I don't know, I was maybe 10 or 12 years old, while we agreed that the handles on the garage door were functional, they weren't much fun. So we went to work trying to figure that out. So we came up with this little game. So what you would do is you would grab the vertical handle and you'd huddle as close to the garage door as you possibly could. And then on the horizontal handle, you would put your feet on it like that and squeeze really tight. And then your brother would push the automatic button and you go for the roller coaster ride. <laughs> now, I have to give a public announcement. Kids, don't try that at home. Um, 
I'm not recommending that. But that's what we did, 10 or 12 years old. And we all know you can't do that kind of stuff when your parents are home, right? So parents weren't home. And the game was you wanted to see how high you could ride the door up before you jumped off. Because you see, as the door bent and buckled under the roof of the garage, if you got sucked into there, that, that could be quite painful. So basically what it boiled down to is the closer you allowed yourself to get to severe injury, the better. Now, problem was um, we kind of misjudged the parental return. And at one point, one of us, you know, mid mid-climb on the old garage door, my mom pulls up in our beige Buick uh, family station wagon. Now, my mom's nickname is Rocky. <laughs> As in the movie character, Italian boxing champion who delivers severe physical beatings to his opponents. That's her nickname. Next time you see her in church, go ahead and say, hey, Rocky. She'll turn her head. So I was terrified, rightfully. But my mom played a parental tactic that maybe some of you have used. So instead of delivering a severe beating in the moment, she just calmly ordered us off the garage door, walked us inside the house and said, we'll have to deal with this when your father comes home. That is scary. Have you suffered injustice? Has the justice that people try to do for one another let you down? Is there a wrong that has not been righted? Do you feel like justice is fading, waning, slipping away? The truth is, justice is not waning. It's brooding, it's growing, and it is coming. You see, dad is coming back. And this time, Jesus will not be sleeping in heavenly peace. He's coming back to set things right, to bring justice once and for all. But remember, church, in the meantime, remember our word. Remember how God is performing justice in a broad and wide sense. The Lord is working righteousness and justice for all who oppressed. I truly believe that. I really do. I know there's always been a lot of injustice in our world. I know that in God's wisdom, factoring in free will, that he's still doing it. And I believe that is something worth believing in, that our God is just. Let's continue. Psalm 103, 6 and 7, the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Now, our psalmist is reminding himself and us as well this. Look, we are not adrift in some uh, spiritual or moral sea. God has made himself known. I mean, could we even consider him loving or good if he hadn't? If I don't teach my kids to, to, to keep their forks away from the electric sockets, am I a good father? No, he has made himself known. 
I, I like what the 18th century British minister, Matthew Henry, I like his commentaries, but he says about verse seven, about God making himself known. God made him known his ways to Moses and by him, his acts to the children of Israel, not only by his rod to, the, to those who then lived, but by his pen to succeeding ages. That's us. Note, divine revelation is one of the first and greatest of divine favors with which the church is blessed. For God restores us to himself by revealing himself to us and gives us all good by giving us knowledge. Now, when we, when we examine how God deals with his people in the Old Testament, I find that people like to pick out kind of like to cherry pick situations where God is maybe very firm or when God delivers some very pointed, quick and swift justice to somebody, they like to cherry pick those situations out of the Old Testament and then say, oh, God's angry, God's bad, God's vindictive. Well, I am here to tell you with absolute certainty, that's just not true. It's not true. And I'm gonna prove it. I'm gonna ask for your help if you don't mind. I'm going to say a sentence, and I want you to try and finish it for me. You ready? The wages of sin is death. That means that as a human being in God's system of justice and salvation, anyone who is born of a sinner, anyone who sins, or anyone who does not act in accordance with 100% holiness and righteousness for every breathing second of their life is sinful and is worthy of a condemnation of death. Amen? That's the way God does it. All right, now, every single time when God deals with his people in their sin and those people's or that person's life is not demanded of them, God has shown grace. The Old Testament is full of people messing up. Big mistakes. Every single time, God doesn't demand that person's life as a result of their sin. He is being gracious. The Bible, the Old Testament Bible is full of God's graciousness. He is so patient. How many years were the Israelites in that desert? <laughs> you know, very, very gracious. And this is another thing. People in the Old Testament times knew it. I think better than we know it sometimes. All right, I'm gonna step aside. This isn't in my notes, but I just wanna point this out. Do you guys remember uh, the prophet Jonah? Ever heard of that story of Jonah and the, the big fish? So Jonah is the prophet of God. God says, hey, Jonah, I need you to go on a mission. I need you to preach a message to these people so that they'll repent and I can forgive them. Jonah says, no thanks, and turns around and goes the other way. Now that doesn't work out so well for Jonah, but eventually Jonah accomplishes his mission. He goes to the city, he preaches, they repent, and God relents from delivering justice. He relents his wrath because they repented. And at the very end of the account of Jonah, we learn a little something about the hatred that Jonah had for those people, which is probably the reason he refused to go in the first place. But Jonah kind of points his finger up at God and said, I didn't want to go repeat, you know, preach repentance to those people. You know why, God? I know who you are. I know you're slow to anger. I know you're abounding in loving kindness. I know that's who you are. 
I know that if I would have gone, I just, that's who you are. The people of the Old Testament knew that because they know a gracious God as we can know. So church, here are a few things about God's love that are worth believing in. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now that is a beautiful song. King David would have sung that. I think each one of these five Bible verses is on a coffee mug somewhere. Maybe embroidered on a throw pillow. I've seen those. I've seen those. God loves you. God loves his people. He cares for you. He cares for us. He's generous. He's generous with his gifts and his blessings. And if he is withholding something from you, it's because for now, that's what's best for you. It takes a lot to get him angry. That alone should make us want to sing for a year and a half. God is not quick to be angry with you. And when we do make him mad, he's not angry for very long. He'll deal with us, though. He will strive with us, firmly if need be, even as a believer, or I'm even tempted to say, especially as a believer, you set your life in contradiction opposing the will and the purpose of Jesus Christ, you will soon learn what it means to contend with God because he cares. He'll interrupt your bad habits. He'll expose your secrets. You know why? Because he loves you. That's what a good dad does. He stops the badness. He's not weak or complacent, that's for sure. The fact that he strives with us at all is actually great news. God, when you allow your brain to imagine the exalted nature of the gaze and the knowledge and the power of God, the fact that he's striving with individual human beings, helping them understand how their lives are off path, how how amazingly loving is that? He's not apathetic to you. And about um, not dealing with us according to our sins. We just established that a few minutes ago, right? We're all breathing in here. We're all breathing. We've all not lived up to the glory of God and we're alive. That means God has been gracious to us. As I've mentioned before from this pulpit a couple times, um, I took three trips to Montana when I was younger. And I think I've now mentioned it four or five times from the pulpit. So mom and dad, those were well planned trips. Apparently they left a mark. But on one of the trips, I went to Montana out with my family when I was younger. 
I remember it specifically because my parents had rented this house and it was in a very remote area. We were driving for hours and hours and hours down this two lane road. Maybe a car came by every once in a while and just went out in the middle of nowhere forever. And then we finally got to where we're going and there's a gravel drive that went up into this kind of mountainous area. And we, we turned onto that gra gravel drive and my suburban kid brain went, we're here. <laughs> not in Montana, you're not. <laughs> you know how like when you're really eager to get somewhere, I swear we were on that gravel road for a year. I mean, it was just on and on and on and on and on. I think I had a birthday on the way. Anyway, <laughs> we finally get to where we're going and, you know, uh, there were two or three other houses on this small lake that we were on, but no kidding. I am guessing that for tens of miles, there was absolutely nothing. And then if you wanted to get to anywhere near like a, a, a group of people, like a populated area, you'd have to take a plane. It was before or since, I don't know if I've ever been in a more remote location in my life. And do you, you, you get to see something far more clearly in a place like that than you can see anywhere else. You know what that is? The night sky. So here's what you do. You pick a time in the middle of the night when the moon is not out. You turn off all the lights inside and outside of the house, and then you go outside and you give your eyes five minutes to adjust to the dark as it's... And then you look up. And I will never forget what I saw that day. My, my, my siblings and I were just astounded at the number of stars that we could see. We were playing this game. We were trying to like pick a very small sliver of the sky that had no star. <laughs> but eventually, as your eyes got used to the light, it was like, oh, there's a star there too. Look over here. Ah, there's stars everywhere. And then the, the Milky Way, the ribbon of that Milky Way was just as clear as anything that you'd ever see. It's gorgeous. And then you think to yourself, well, I'm just a dude standing on a rock that's rotating and revolving around a smaller than average star that we call the sun that exists in a solar system somewhere in the spiral arm of a galaxy which is rotating around what astronomers say is a black hole that has the mass of one million suns. And modern astronomers will tell you that there are over 100 billion galaxies in the universe. And the greatness of the expanse of the highness of the universe just kind of weighs on you. And you can begin to feel kind of small. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. And I wonder, did God make the universe as grand and vast as he did with his glory on display so that we might understand just how much 
he loves us. His loving, his loving kindness for you is as the expanse of the known universe. Now, astronomers will tell you that they can, they'll give you a number about how big our universe is, so it's like finite. But here's what I, here's, here's my thing. Go ahead and take a pen and paper and start writing out how big the universe is. And after a certain number of zeros, you're going to give up and say, it's just big. It's just big. And loving kindness to church. I want to point that out. It's loving kindness. When we attach the word kindness to the word loving in the original language, what that conveys is action. It's not, God is just not having some feeling like we might have as humans of love. This is action. This is doing, helping, rescuing, and freeing. It's love that acts on our behalf. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And if, if the metaphor of a vast universe wasn't big enough to convey how much he loves us, God uses language to describe how far he moves our sin away from us that is not even calculable. It is infinite. There is no distance between East and West. It goes on and on and on forever. Our sin has been eternally removed to us. And we are his children. He is a compassionate father. I'm going to save a study on the fear of God until next time I'm with you, church. I just feel like that's beyond the scope of what we can do here today. But in order to wrap up our time here, I want to take another look at Psalm 103, our psalm, our verses. But I want to take a cue from our awesaw, our big, grand, big look. And I want to step up high and take a bigger look at this psalm and look at it with our gospel lenses on. I told you that this psalm had a lot of gospel infused in it. And let's take a look at how that is. So our, our passage for today began with this verse, that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And our section of our psalm ends with the idea of God being our father, a compassionate father. Um, now, there was a, a very trying time for the people of Israel when they were severely oppressed. Um, the people of Israel were enslaved by the Egyptian people. And as a, any Hebrew growing up in Old Testament times, they would, have been, they would have been taught about it. They would have heard about it almost on a daily basis. And they would have memorized scripture verses about it. And they would have memorialized it on an annual basis. They would have memorialized the day that God performed their justice um, with a, a festival they called the Passover. So the Israelite people were oppressed. But did you know that the very first mention of God's people being his children in the whole Bible is when Moses stands before Pharaoh and demands that he free God's people from slavery. It's the very first time that it is mentioned that God's people are his children. From Exodus chapter 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. It's as if God wants us to be absolutely sure 
that to be one of his children is to be on the receiving end of a performance of a work that frees us from oppression. Now, that particular work that God did for the Israelites in Egypt, if you recall from your Bible stories, maybe from when you were younger, how did he work that? What was the performance? Well, this is what he did. He made the people um, kill a spotless lamb. Then he had the people take the blood of that lamb, the Israelite people, and put it on the doorpost above their homes so that when God's justice came down, they would be saved. In other words, by covering themselves with the blood of the lamb, that blood would shield them from the devastating just wrath of God. The very act of working righteousness and justice for God's people involved being covered with the blood of the lamb. And you know what, church? He did that for the Israelite people in Egypt. He did it for us 2,000 years ago. Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood. He died and he rose again. And he, in doing so, frees us from the oppression of sin. Sin is the ultimate oppressor. We need God to work and perform a great work to save us. And he did. And now, if we cover ourselves with the blood of Jesus Christ, that will shield us from the coming devastating wrath and justice of God that I spoke about earlier. Look at these couple verses of Psalm 103. Let's look at them through our gospel lens. The Lord performs righteous deeds. Well, that was some performance Jesus had at Calvary, amen? He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Nope, he didn't. He did deal with them though. He dealt with our sins on Jesus. The Bible doesn't say God doesn't deal with sins. The Bible said he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. You know who he dealt with according to our sins? Jesus Christ on Calvary. Praise God. And as far as the east is from the west, removing our sin, God the Father has made a way for all who would receive and accept his son. Certainly this is love worth believing in. So new hope, let's not be distracted or discouraged, but let's continue to encourage and strengthen one another in these truths. May God move some mountains among us with the faith that he will build in us as we count and remember his love for us. Go in peace. Have a great day. God bless you.